We're going to start this morning in Revelation chapter 16. We've been going through the book of Revelation for the last number of weeks, and we've worked our way up to the 16th chapter. While you're finding that, let me make some comments. It seems to me that most of the confusion that people have about the book of Revelation is because of the terminology that they don't understand, the terminology that the Bible uses. For example, the Bible clearly identifies Satan in an illustration as the dragon, the great dragon that works against the people of God. But it talks about three, it uses three different, or it uses one term to refer to three different things or people. The term beast is referred to first and foremost as the governmental system that the devil uses to try to control man and make make war against God. But then it also uses the word beast to describe the Antichrist. Then third, it uses the word beast to describe the false prophet who is the Antichrist surrogate, the mouthpiece, if you will, to convince people to worship the image of the beast, the governmental system, and to take upon himself the mark of the beast, which enables them to buy and sell and so forth. Furthermore, there are different plagues that the Bible refers to. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the seven seals that Jesus opens that creates conditions upon the earth that begin at the tribulation period. The first seal is the war that uh, Russia wages in Russia and Iran and the coalition army wages against Israel. The second seal is the uh, releases the Antichrist and so forth. Then in Revelation chapter 8, it talks about seven trumpets. Now these seven trumpets release seven different plagues. In Revelation chapter 15, it talks about the seven vials. Some translations use the word bowls instead of vials. Um, and it seems to many that these seven vials, or at least some of the seven vials, are the same as the seven trumpets that are referred to in Revelation chapter 8. But I think the best way to describe what's taking place in Revelation chapter 16, which is the description of the seven vials which make up the or finish the wrath of God upon the earth. I think the best way to describe that is it's plagues 2.0. Some of them, some of the seven vials, as we'll see, are a fulfillment or a completion of different plagues that were begun in Revelation chapter 8 with the trumpets. Now, the, the time periods is what makes the difference. The seven seals in Revelation chapter 6 begin the tribulation period, and some of them carry on through the end of it. The seventh seal has something to do with the last day of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 8, the seven trumpets primarily begin at the midpoint of tribulation and carry on to just about the end of tribulation period. But the seven vials are the things that happen right at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation that finish up the work of God on the earth and culminate in the day of Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon that we looked at a little bit before. So let's start in chapter 16. And see what these seven vials are all about. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels. Go your ways and pour out the vials of wrath of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. 
And there fell a noise, noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. You remember we read before that an angel went flying through the air before the mark of the beast was instituted, warning people against worshipping the image, the idol of the governmental system that the Antichrist sets up and warning them against taking the mark of the beast. Everybody was fairly warned. And as a result, this first vial opens up a, a grievous, a noisome and grievous sore. What that means is simply this. It must have been something like, it must be something like a boil that erupts and breaks that causes great pain upon the people and also infection, fever and infection. That's the only thing that, that we have any medical example of that would fit the description of noisome and grievous. Verse 3, and the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Now, you may remember in Revelation chapter 8, the second trumpet unleashed one-third of the, unleashed a plague that caused one-third of the seas to be turned into blood. It tells us that a third of the ships died, a third of the creatures in the, the seas died as a result well here's the finishing of that plague because it says that the holes of the sea the completion of the sea which would be the mediterranean the adriatic seas turned into the blood of a dead man and notice the description it uses the blood of a dead man what's the blood of a dead man it's coagulated blood and so as a result everything that's still alive in the seas die all the ships that are in the seas sink. Everybody that has anything to do with is in contact with the seas at the point in time that this takes place is killed. Now the next file has to do with the rivers where they're getting their drinking water. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters and they became blood. You remember in Revelation chapter 8, one of the trumpets unleashed uh, what is referred to as a star called Wormwood that falls into the freshwater supply of that part of the earth and it destroyed or made poisonous. Bitter is what the King James says, one-third of the waters. So it's telling us that this second and third vial destroys all the water supply in one-fourth of the, the part of the earth that the Antichrist is ruling over, which is about, which is about 25% or one-quarter of the earth. Now, this gives us some kind of indication of the time period that's taking place. If the freshwater supply, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but I should, where it says the rivers turned into blood, it doesn't say the blood of a dead man. In other words, the flowing streams, the flowing rivers are blood in this third vial. As apart from or different from the coagulated blood of a dead man from the second vial. Now, what that means is one-fourth of the earth has no water supply whatsoever. How long can people live without water? It's just a matter of three or four days, isn't it? So this gives us a time period that we can plug in for these, at least these two vials. They must be the very last few days of the tribulation period. It's not like this could go on for weeks and weeks or months and months. Because people can't live without water. 
Now, I'll remind you in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in chapter 15, in verse 7, it says, One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Where it says full of the wrath of God, it means the completion or the end point of the wrath of God. So these seven vials are the last things that are happening during the tribulation period, probably in the last three or four days, at least some of them. Verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, past, present, future, because thou hast judged us. For they, the people upon which these vials were poured out, and again, it's not the whole world, it's just the countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea primarily, northern Africa and such. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, this may be a reference to Revelation chapter 6, where it talks about the tribulation martyrs. And I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And here's the fourth vial. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Now remember one of the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 blacked out the sun, the moon, and the stars for a one-third of the day, eight-hour period of each day. So for eight hours of every 24, there's been no natural light available in the Antichrist kingdom. Now here's the completion or the finishing of that plague where it talks about something that happens to the sun And another vial will have to do with darkness. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with a great heat and blasphemed the name of God which has power over those plagues and they repented not to give him glory. Now think about what's going on. The fourth plague or the fourth vial I should say is poured out after the water supply is destroyed. So now you've got for a period of several days no water on a fourth part of the earth and then the sun begins to act in such a manner that creates intense heat, sunburn, dehydration, heat prostration, all the other things that we know of that people suffer as a result of extreme heat conditions. Now this becomes rampant on that part of the earth. It's not a pleasant time. But again, this is the fulfillment or the completion of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. Even though there's intense heat, there's no light from it, from the sun. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Now notice during the darkness, the sores are still in place the first vial so these seem to be overlapping one another in the last few days of the tribulation period and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the waters were dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared now remember in Revelation chapter 9 it talks about the sixth trumpet 
where the angel of the river Euphrates, the four angels of the river Euphrates, are released to call in the Oriental army, the 200 million man army. But now, in the last few days of the tribulation, the Euphrates River is dried up so that they have a clear path to the place that we know of as Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Paul called them lying wonders in writing to the Thessalonians. Working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. In other words, it seems to be saying that there are supernatural things that take place to gather everybody together for the end, which we know of as the battle of Armageddon. God's bringing everybody into place. Remember, he's warned them, not only through the ministry of the 144,000, not to mention the church before the tribulation begins, but through the ministry of the 144,000, through the angels flying through the air preaching the gospel, through the two witnesses that are showing forth the power of God and resisting the Antichrist and his his kingdom. But now those that have rejected God in every way, he's setting them in position to be judged. Now talking about the battle of Armageddon, just the mention of the battle of Armageddon, notice what it says in verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, who is that writing to? Who is that speaking about? Well, behold, I come as a thief. It's got to be Jesus talking about himself. But who does he come as a thief to? We know exactly the number of days in the tribulation period. It's exactly seven years. It's exactly 84 months. I mean, if you know the beginning of the tribulation event, which is the war that Russia and Iran make against Israel, you can count them down. And there will be people that are counting them down. Two witnesses, part of their ministry is a countdown to when the Lord returns and the battle of Armageddon takes place. So he's not coming as a thief for those that are in tribulation. Who's he writing to? This has got to be a, a message to the church. Now, the significant thing here to me is not just that he's coming unexpectedly because in one sense, we we expect him to come back. We're looking for him to come back. But the time is going to be unexpected. Nobody, no man knows the day or the hour, the Bible says. But the important thing about this to me is that as soon as he talks about the end of tribulation, as soon as he makes mention of the great judgment, the great day of Almighty God, He reminds the church that we're not going to be involved in that. Behold, I come as a thief in the night. Get ready. He's not talking to the people of tribulation about getting ready. They've already made their choice. He's talking to the church. He comforts the church to remind us once again, we're not going to be taking part of the battle of Armageddon, nor the plagues that are spoken of in the seven vials. Verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place that's called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. 
The seventh vial is the, the announcement that this has come to an end. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not seen since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Now, he talks about an upheaval of nature. Now, the Bible speaks of that in both the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, seventh seal of Revelation 6, the seventh trumpet, which is described in Revelation chapter 9. So it seems that some of the previous events or descriptions were an overview where this is more of a detailed explanation of what's involved. Now, remember some things that the Bible tells us that we can put together with this upheaval of nature. Joel chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 24, both the prophet Joel and Jesus himself talked about the last day of tribulation would be where the sun turned to blackness and the moon turned blood red. It talks about stars falling from heaven. Isaiah thirteen thirteen says that it was such an upheaval of nature that the earth was moved out of its place. There's going to be an earthquake like there never was before. Jesus is going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives. And all these things take place consecutively or consequentially to create a, a catastrophe on the earth like it's never seen before. Here's what it says takes place as a result. Verse 19 in the great city must be talking about Jerusalem was divided into three parts and the cities of the nation fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now keep that in mind where it says great Babylon was brought before the Lord, was remembered before the Lord. Because Babylon represents something more than just a city or a place. We'll talk about that in chapter 17 in just a minute. But hold your thoughts on that until we get to that place. Verse 20, and every island fled away and the mountains were not found. This is the earth moving out of its place. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, still part of the seventh vial. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now, there are different measures that are used for people to, to determine how much a talent is. There are conservatively a talent is 90 pounds. The highest estimate is 130 pounds. So what, what the Bible is calling about hail falling from the sky. We might call a meteor shower. And the men that are left on the earth. Don't look to themselves and say, we brought this upon ourselves. We've sinned against God. But instead, they blaspheme God. So the idea must be similar to what we see today. Nobody wants to be judged. You notice how often people are saying, well, you're judging me. What does that mean? I mean, sin, sin, no matter how popular it gets. Homosexuality didn't stop being a sin because it becomes popular in America. So when somebody says, you're judging me, what does that mean? Well, as far as I'm concerned, it means I'm calling sin, sin. The Bible doesn't have any problem. God doesn't have any problem loving people. 
and recognizing and calling sin out for what it is. God hates the lie but loves the liar. But it doesn't change the lie into the truth. So apparently that's the, the prevalent thought or attitude on the earth at the time of these last vials of the completion of tribulation. They don't look to themselves. They don't accept any responsibility for themselves in their own actions. Instead, they justify themselves and say, this is God's fault. Well, it was certainly God's doing, but they didn't have to be a part of it. Chapter 17. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me and saying unto me, come hither and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, this is the world's religious system. He's talking about the judgment that's going to come upon the world's religious system. Now, there's a lot of speculation, has been much speculation over the years about what this is. I don't think we know. The reason is we can't point to something, an organization that is the amalgamation or the summarization of all of man's false religions and so forth. So it seems to me the most clearest explanation would be that once the church is gone, this thing rises up to try to explain the things that have happened in the departure of the church and so forth. If there was an organization that existed now that we could say was a group that was gathering together all the religions of the world, then we might be able to point to them and say they're the ones. But you can see some of it happening, some some of it coming to pass, even now, where you've got certain religious leaders, I'm not sure they're Christians, but certain religious leaders saying that Christianity and Islam worships the same God. Well, if the Bible's true, that can't be true. And so you see certain religious leaders making excuses for false religions and taking what they, I guess, what they perceive to be a tolerant position toward them. Well, once the church is gone, it's likely, in my thinking, that without the resistance provided by the body of Christ any longer, that this amalgamation or conglomeration of the world's religions will organize. And that's the religious system that it talks about will be destroyed. Come hither and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now I want you to notice several things that it mentions. Well, let me read verse 5, and then I'll make my comments. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. 
Now notice the names identify certain characteristics about this conglomeration or this organization of false religions. First, it has a mystical quality, mystery. It's already talked about the woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast with seven heads and ten horns. Now, I may be getting ahead of myself just a little bit, but let me explain the beast and the seven heads and ten horns a bit and why it's called Babylon. And this goes back to the previous chapter that I told you to keep in your thoughts where the Bible says Babylon was brought into remembrance by God and the wrath was poured out upon it. You remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision in the book of Daniel? He had a dream and he wanted the interpretation of the dream and none of his sorcerers could give him the interpretation so he called Daniel, which had interpreted dreams before. And he told Daniel that he wanted the interpretation of the dream but he wanted to be sure that the interpretation was right. So he said to Daniel, I'm not even going to tell you the dream I dreamed. You're going to have to tell me the dream and what it means. That way I'll know that you've given me the right interpretation and that the interpretation is from God. So Daniel got the revelation from the Lord about what the dream was. And do you remember what it was? It was where he saw this giant statue. It had a head of gold and a chest and midsection of silver. It had thighs of brass and then lower legs and feet of iron and brass. Well, Daniel interpreted that vision. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. He interpreted that vision to mean different kingdoms. He said the golden kingdom, the golden head was Babylon. After that will come another kingdom that will be inferior, which was the Medo-Persian kingdom. After that will come another kingdom which was the thighs of brass, which was the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And then finally he said that the last, he identified that the last kingdom, the legs and feet of iron and brass, or iron and clay, uh, sorry, I misspoke there. Uh, Legs and feet of iron and clay would be the Roman empire, the Roman kingdom. Now we're going to see that this thing is spoken of where it's clear that this, uh, this uh, system, this beast system, this governmental system that's revealed is revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's day under the Babylonian Empire. For that reason, and only for that reason, the system or the beast itself is called Babylon. That's not when it began. It began with the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the first ones to enslave the people of God. After they were delivered by Moses to the hand of God and the seven, the ten plagues and so forth. It tells us that Israel became their own nation, took the promised land, became their own nation. But over a period of time through rebellion, they divided into two tribes. Or the, the twelve tribes divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was ten and a half tribes, was the nation of Israel. The southern kingdom, which was one and a half tribes, was Judah. The Assyrians came and took the northern kingdom captive. This is the second of the seven kingdoms. First the Egyptians, second the Assyrians. And every one of them have to do with something against the people of God. 107 years later, Babylon came and took Judah captive. The one and a half tribes left of the southern kingdom. And that's when Daniel began to prophesy and began to see visions 
about the end. So for that reason, it's called Babylon rather than Egypt. Not because it started with Babylon, but it makes sense that God would speak to Nebuchadnezzar not about things past, but about him being the great golden head. God stroked his ego while he was telling them about the destruction of his kingdom. So when the Bible talks about these seven kings or these seven mountains, it's talking about the seven kingdoms upon which this false religion went back even to the time of Egypt. You remember Egypt and still even today we have geographical and archaeological historical records of statues and idol worship and all kinds of things, maybe more so with Egypt than any other nation on the face of the earth. Well, we had the same thing with Babylon. We don't know much about the Assyrian kingdom, but the Bible tells us that they were governed by sorcerers and magicians just as much as the others were. We do know something about the Roman kingdom, well, the Greek as well. The Greek empire is full of statues. They worship man more than any other thing. The Roman kingdom, remember, we were told a lot about the idol worship and the multiplicity of temples and idols and so forth that dominated the people during the time of Rome. That's what this is talking about. And when the names are given as mystery, Babylon the Great is talking about the mystical or the occult quality of this conglomeration of false religions. It's telling us about that it's the mother of all harlots. It's the mother of all abominations of the earth. In other words, the devil has used the same thing, even though there's been different kingdoms that he's tried to rule man through or by. We know the the mystical quality of Egypt. You remember when Moses went into Pharaoh's court and he tried to, uh, he used the sign that God gave him to prove that God had sent him to say, let my people go. He threw the staff that it was in his hand down onto the floor and it turned into a snake. Well, Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. The only difference is Moses' stick ate up there. Moses' stick snake ate up theirs. The power of God always swallows up the work of the enemy. It may look the same, but it's not the same in power. Verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Do you remember the, when we looked at uh, the other series that we did last fall, I believe it was, the letters to the seven churches? You remember how martyrdom was such an issue because of the, the false gods and the control that the Roman Empire had and their religious system had upon the people. Just an example of what the Bible is speaking to. And when I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This word admiration is wonder. It's not really admiration. That's not a good translation. In other words, he's saying, I wondered at what I saw. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel or wonder? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. The beast that's being spoken of here is the religious, I mean, is the, uh, the kingdoms, the seven kingdoms. Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, Roman, and then the one, the resurrected Roman Empire that carries her. 
I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which had the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest, sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Well, that seems confusing. He's going to describe and explain. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains or kingdoms upon which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Well, that confirms that, that the mountains are kingdoms. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. And one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he is come, he must continue a short, short space. Now, notice he says five were fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. It's a total of seven. Or the seven kingdoms that he's referred to in the previous part of the verse. The seven kingdoms, the five that are, that are already passed or fallen, is first the Egyptian, second the Assyrian, third the Babylonian, fourth the Medo-Persian, fifth the Greek, and sixth, well, those are five that are fallen. The one that is, from Paul's point in time, or, uh, oh, what's his name? John. From John's point in time, when he receives this revelation, the one that is, or is present tense in power, was the Roman kingdom. He says the one that is yet to come is the resurrected Roman kingdom, the resurrected Roman empire that the Antichrist will take control of. So the five that are fallen are the five previous ones. The one that is is the Roman empire, and the one that is yet to come is the resurrected Roman empire. Now back to Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This statue that he sees that identifies four of the kingdoms, this statue that he sees is destroyed by a rock that's made without hands. That rock is, a, is a, an illustration of the church. The church destroys the resurrection of Jesus and the body of Christ left on the earth, destroys the Antichrist, or not the Antichrist, the devil's governmental system that the Antichrist will resurrect. Now let me, I pointed this out before, but it, it bears repetition. And it's so important that we be reminded of this. This is the devil's power in its greatest manifestation. There is no greater manifestation of the devil's power on the earth than the beast system, the governmental system, the combination of, of government, commerce, and religion which all of these kingdoms incorporate. When one kingdom would fall to another kingdom, the governmental system would change, but the governmental foundation, the people ruling would change, but the system would remain the same. The commerce would remain the same. The religious system would change only in that they would swap one god for another god, but still had the same effect upon the people. That's the devil's greatest manifestation of power on the face of the earth. And he can't do a thing while the church is here. Now the devil would tell you and me that he's the big bad guy. That he's all powerful and that he can do anything to you that he wants to do. But then I have a question. Why didn't he do it? Why does the devil frequently tell us what he's going to do? Instead of just doing it and then laughing in our face. 
because as the body of Christ, as individual members of the body of Christ, we have power to stop his activity. That'd be nice if our, the exercise of our authority worked instantly. Wouldn't that be great? I personally would prefer that. But it doesn't always work that way. But it does always work. The Bible says through faith and patience you inherit the promises. Sometimes it takes longer than we want it to take. Maybe I should say it always takes longer than we want it to take. Because even if things happen immediately, we would like them to happen a little bit faster. But the important thing is, you've been given authority over all the power of the devil. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world is a real statement. It's truth. And it's especially true when the body of Christ gets together and uses their power in connection with one another. The devil cannot do his thing while the church is here. Well, what do you think that would mean if the church used its power to pray to stop the devil's activity in our land or in the world it would have been? What effect, what success could we enjoy then as opposed to just biding our time until the end comes? I believe we could change things, folks. I believe we're supposed to change things. I believe we're supposed to thwart the devil's operations in every way possible for as long as we're here. Well, why don't we? Primarily it's because we don't pray. If the church would pray and allow the Holy Ghost to lead us in prayer, this would be a different world. And it's supposed to be a different world up until the time that we leave. And once we're gone, we're out. No more praying to be done for us. But until that point in time, we've got a responsibility. Let me back up to verse 10. And there are seven kings. Five are followed. Notice none of them are mentioned by name. It's not about the personality. It's about the system. For example, it doesn't speak of one of the pharaohs of Egypt. It doesn't speak of one of the Caesars. It doesn't even call Nebuchadnezzar by name. It's about the system, not the personality in charge of the system. At least until the Antichrist. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is the Roman Empire. And the other has not yet come. It will be the resurrected Roman Empire. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, he hadn't come yet in John's day. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, or a product of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Now, the verse 11 is talking about the Antichrist. He's the eighth that will take control of this resurrected Roman Empire. And he becomes the eighth beast that has identified and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet but receive power as kings one hour with the beast now what is this talking about it's talking about in john's day the kings that will give their power strength and military might under the antichrist were not in place because they were all part of the roman empire 
during the time John receives this revelation. So he's saying that the Roman Empire, which will be destroyed, will eventually wind up in the hands of ten kings or smaller kings, and they'll pledge their support, their resources, and their military strength to the Antichrist when the time comes. And, of course, that time is after the church is gone. So that's what that means with the ten kings. They have one mind and shall give their power and strength, military might, unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And them that are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Notice it speaks of somebody being with Jesus when this war is made against him, this battle of Armageddon takes place. You know who that is? That's you. The Bible talks about the Son of Man returning with glory. It's not talking about him coming for the church. It's talking about him returning from the glory. And it says he gathers his elect from the four winds, not from the earth, but from the four winds of heaven. We're spending the seven years of tribulation in heaven with Jesus. And when the time comes for him to come back to the battle of Armageddon, we come with him. Now, don't worry. You don't have to start working out and getting your battle stuff going. Because remember, the battle of Armageddon has taken place in one hour with the last plague that's poured out upon the earth where people's flesh melts off their faces and their bones. The Bible says that Jesus wins the war with the words of his mouth, the sword that comes from his mouth. In other words, he speaks a word and man disintegrates. I guess we're there to cheer him on. I'm not exactly sure what our part there is, but you're with him. This seems almost like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But it's truth. It's real. It'll happen. We'll be looking at each other on that day, shaking our heads, saying, wow, this really did happen, didn't it? And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, verse 15, where the whore sitteth, and remember that's the religious system, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Notice it's been working through all the people of the earth from the beginning. Now let me make a comment here. Stop long enough to make a couple of comments here. When we talk about the beast being resurrected or the Roman Empire being resurrected, what does that mean? Well, the countries that made up the Roman Empire now, or I'm sorry, the countries that made up the Roman Empire in John's day are primarily the European Union today. Now, there are other countries that are not part of the European Union yet, at least, that make up the northern Africa, uh, the countries of northern Africa. But it tells us that there will be ten kingdoms, a minimum of ten, maybe more, but a minimum of ten kingdoms that will be joined together in government, commerce, and religion that will lend to their, the Antichrist their military might. How many of you know what the building that headquarters the European Union was fashioned after? Some of you? A few of you? Well, let me tell you. If you Google the European Union headquarters, 
you'll find that it is an exact duplication or a replica of the unfinished Tower of Babel. They left the top of it unfinished. It's got an unfinished look to it. That's weathered in, of course, but it's got an unfinished look to it. It's based on a famous painting. I don't know who painted it, but a famous painting of what the Tower of Babel was envisioned to look like after God confounded the language and the people were no longer able to work together. Now, what was the Tower of Babel all about? It was man trying to make himself as God. Now, whatever you think about the European Union and not living under it, we probably have some different ideas than the people that do live under it. But whatever you think about it, the people that originated the thing, the people that founded the thing, had a specific purpose in mind. And they identified that purpose with the Tower of Babel, where men tried to make themselves as God. So you can see that this religious system that might be something different than what we would think of, we think of church, we think of worshiping God, but the Tower of Babel, which goes back almost to the beginning of time, was the beginning of this false religious system where man exalts himself above God. So don't get trapped into thinking that it's some religious form of worship that we're familiar with but rather it might be identified as humanism. My thinking is this, and I could be way off on this, but I imagine this religious system to be something like New Age philosophy, which basically encompasses whatever you want it to be, that steps up and tries to explain why the people left. And remember, it's not just a a sanitized thing where all the Christians are gone. Paul talks about children being alive unto God before the age of accountability. So you're going to have a lot of the people of the earth that have young children. Those children are going to disappear. The rapture is going to be an anguishing time for a lot of people. Parents particularly. Not only will they have lost people that they might have been acquainted with, maybe even family members, but their young children will be snatched from their arms and disappear. Well, man's going to have to come up with some kind of explanation for that. And it'll be the ultimate in fake news. I'm sure CNN will be here to lend their opinion. But somebody's going to have to come up with some kind of explanation. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but New Age has an explanation for it already. They say that the that the whoever it is that they worship, which is some woman, deity, will get rid of all the church for the benefit of the people that are left here on the earth. Now I don't know how that explains the children that are gone. But New Age is already in place with an explanation for the rapture. Because the devil knows that it's going to happen and he can't stop it. So it could be that once the church is gone, 
either new age or some similar thing or maybe something entirely different. I don't know. But the world comes up with some kind of explanation to trick themselves into believing a lie that satisfies them and salves their conscience. And maybe it becomes the dominant religion of the world. We know that Islam is basically wiped away when God destroys the Russian coalition army in the war against Israel in one 24-hour period. So it seems to me the most likely idea is something that we don't know of, not something that's already here and in place, or at least something that's not predominant. But you decide for yourself. Where would we leave off? Verse 15. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth, the religious system, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns, the little ten kingdoms, which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, the religious system, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and to give unto their kingdom give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now let's back up a little bit and talk about things from a bigger picture standpoint. The beginning of the tribulation, which begins with the war Russia and Iran warring against Israel, those armies and those nations are destroyed. The Bible says God causes hail and fire to fall not just on the armies but the nations themselves and leave but a sixth part. If you do the math, that means he destroys 83% of the countries. Now, most of those countries that make up the coalition army are Islamic nations. So he does away with 83% of the Islamic nations along with Russia that are part of this coalition army in one 24-hour period. That doesn't mean all of Islam is wiped out, but you can understand that the better part of it, at least in the Middle Eastern part of the world, in the Northern African part of the world, is done away with. You've still got Islamic nations like Pakistan and India, Philippines, the islands of the sea, and so forth. Those are not the ones that are creating the trouble with Islamic terror in the world today. So Islam cannot be the, or it doesn't make sense, that Islam would be the predominant world religion. Consequently, the, the Antichrist uses the chaos that's created in that part of the world to gather together the remainder of the European nation countries. Ten of these nations, and you can well understand that there might be a redrawing of geographical boundaries with the kind of destruction that takes place on the first day of the tribulation. Maybe that's why there are ten kingdoms. Maybe it's a combination some of these other lands and nations that merge with one another. I don't know. But we do know that the Antichrist presents himself as the great unifier, even though his purpose is to divide. He presents himself as the great unifier to gather together the governmental, the commercial, and the religious systems of the world, or that part of the world. Now, the reason that the religious system is important is because he utilizes it. He presents himself as a spiritual man as well as a great leader and a great diplomat. He presents himself as a spiritual man so that he gathers people together unto himself. 
The problem is he hates the system that he has to use to present himself as this spiritual leader. Because he doesn't want to be a part of a spiritual leader, doesn't want to be the spiritual leader of the false religion. He wants to proclaim himself as God himself. So he destroys the harlot system, the religious organization. It seems to indicate that there's a headquarters, the great city that is destroyed by the military might of these ten nations that come together. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, he proclaims himself. He sits in the temple of Jerusalem and proclaims himself as God. So for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, there is no religious system in place. He is a religious system. The false prophet sells the idea to the people, erects the statue or the idol, worldwide idol worship, not meaning the entirety of the earth, but worldwide meaning that fourth part of the earth that he's under, it's under his control. He reinstitutes idol worship and he proclaims himself as God of all. And that's when things really start getting bad. That's when everything that he does, that God steps up. He makes war against the remnant of Israel. God protects them. Makes war initially against 144,000 and their converts, and God raptures them. Then he makes war against the remnant of Israel, and God whisks them away into the wilderness to protect them. Then the two witnesses show up, and he tries to wage war against them for almost three and a half years. And every time that he stands against or sends somebody to stand against them, they burn him up with fire from their mouth. What kind of God is that? He can't control the weather, the plagues and the hail and the sun and the moon and all these things are taking place, upheavals of nature. He can't control the weather. He can't control his own actions. He can't make fresh water for people to drink. And yet he proclaims himself as God. Now, that may sound far-fetched to us, but we've got some of the same things happening today. We've got some of the same truths on display, or maybe I should say the same lies on display, where people are presenting themselves as some great power or some great ability, but they don't have control over the things that they're doing. The answer is very simple, and it's one that we need to keep in mind, and that is there is one God. He's the creator of the universe. And he lives in you. These last few days of tribulation identify a number of things. We mentioned a few of them before. But there's thunderings and lightnings like never been seen before. There are earthquakes that destroy not only the city of Jerusalem, or divides it into three parts, but destroy the cities of the world. I remember... Uh, I remember a vision, and and I was reminded of it not long ago, where somebody posted something that Brother Hagin saw back in the 50s. It was a vision of of a major city in America. It was a vision of New York City that was burned out and destroyed. And God spoke to him about the sin that was at work in the earth and about the end time result. Well, I think a lot of people misinterpreted that. I know I did for a long time. But it could be that what the Lord was showing Brother Hagin then was the end result of the spirit of iniquity that's working in the earth today. That'll be what cities, particularly major cities, 
cities with skyscrapers and tall buildings will look like when this major earthquake takes place at the end of the tribulation on the last day of the tribulation. It's the end result of the culmination of the sin that we're supposed to resist that's at work today. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and also Luke chapter 21 when the disciples asked him, he talked about the temple. They were amazed at the beauty of Herod's temple. Jesus wasn't impressed and said there's coming a day where there won't be one stone left upon another. Well, they were interested about that. They said, when will these things be? And what are the signs of your, of your coming and what are the signs of the end? The first thing Jesus said, and I missed it for a long time, for many years, I missed it. Jesus went on to say, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and stuff like that. And I think I, like most everybody else, focused on that type of stuff. But there's one thing that Jesus said prior to that that I think may be the key or more important than the physical occurrences that we know of as signs. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Why would he talk about deception? I mean, if he's going to give us signs, if he's going to say wars and rumors of wars and famines and and uh, droughts and stuff like that are the sign of his coming. What's there to be deceived about that? I mean, if he gives us a sign, the sign can't be a deception. So why does he speak of deception in connection with the signs, the physical signs that he speaks to? I believe he's talking about the first sign is deception. He's got to be talking either to Israel or the church or both. It's amazing to me how many Christians are deceived by what's going on around them. It's amazing to me how many Christians are more interested in politics than they are in Christianity. Now, we may disagree on political positions or political ideas or the, what we think is the answer to the problem that our country faces. But folks, no matter who's in power, no matter who's doing what, I'm always going to be more Christian than I am American. And I think that should be true for every country. If I lived in Germany, I'd be more Christian than I was German. The Bible says that God is made of all nations one blood through Jesus. Well, why then would we allow ourselves to be pulled away from Bible truths and Bible doctrines because we might have differences in politics? The same thing's true where people are getting pulled away by the culture of the day. There are churches that are being pulled away from the truth of the word in an attempt and maybe well-meaning attempt to be tolerant to homosexuals and gay marriage. Why would we get pulled away from the truth of the word just so people won't think bad of us because of our stand against sin? I'm not against homosexuals, but it doesn't mean what they're doing is right. It doesn't mean homosexuality stops being a sin. Well, then why would we allow ourselves to be pulled away by that? Same thing's true where abortion is concerned. And I'm just hitting the hot button points of our society today. Why would we pulled, be pulled away from the truth of the Bible, which is pretty clear on what sin is? 
because of our concern for how people would view us or what they're going to say about us. Why would we allow ourselves to be pulled away and deceived? And you do realize, I hope, that the only reason we get pulled away from the word is because of deception. Heaven forbid that we'd make a conscious choice to do that. I don't even want to go there. But why would we allow ourselves to be deceived from the truth of the word just because of what society is doing? The same society that's going to experience the wrath of God and going to be ultimately destroyed. Why should we let that be a factor in what we believe to be true? Take heed that no man deceive you. He didn't even say take heed that the devil doesn't deceive you. He said take heed that no man deceive you. The ideas, the beliefs of man is going to be a major factor to cause much of the church to fall away. Let's don't let that be us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us the end of this world. But, oh, Father, thank you for revealing to us that we're not appointed unto wrath. That we, your people, your church, are not a part of the plagues and the disasters that take place at the end. But instead, our part is to be led of the Spirit of God to pray, to exercise our authority in the name of Jesus, to stop the devil's work. For that reason, Father, we act in obedience to what your word says. You said, first of all, let supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in your sight, who would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We recognize, Father, that peaceful times are the best times for the gospel to go forth, for people to receive the truth of Jesus. For that reason, Father, we pray for the leaders of our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for our congressmen. We pray, Father, for judges, whether elected or appointed. We pray for all those that are in places of influence upon the leaders of our nation. We pray, Father, that your hand would be upon them, that you would lead them by your spirit, that you would cause godly counsel to come into their hearts and minds. And, Father, we pray that the work of the enemy would be exposed. We pray that the light of the word would be shed and shined forth on all the work that the enemy is doing. No matter what political party is doing it, no matter who's behind it, we ask, Father, that the truth would be revealed, that hidden things would come to light so that we can walk in truth and our leaders can govern according to truth and righteousness. And, Father, we're not looking for politics to solve the problems of our world. We ask you for a moving of the Spirit of God the power of God to be shown forth. We pray, Father, that healing would flow like a river in these last days to display the power of God. And we pray, Father, that salvation would rise as the tide.
that multitudes of people would be swept into the kingdom of God by your goodness, by your presence, and by your power. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Remembering, Lord, that you said that the glory of the last day church would be greater than the early days of the church. The the glory of this last day church will be greater than the glory we see as recorded in the book of Acts. Oh, Father, we thank you for making that so. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that prayer, say amen. Amen. We serve a great God. We serve an awesome God. We pray we serve a God that judges sin, but that redeems us when we were sinners. Amen? Let's all stand together. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can.